The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.1, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. This passage uh, is what I would call the constitution of our intercessor's ministry. A constitution is a document that embodies the fundamental principles of an organization or a nation. And this passage right here, it embodies the fundamental principles of the intercessor's ministry. And as we look at it tonight, uh, I'm praying that God would show us uh, why this ministry is so vital and then teach us how uh, we must operate in the days ahead. If you're taking notes, uh, we'll first look at the call. The call. This passage starts out, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, and so on, be made for all men. This Bible word for exhort literally means to call near, to invite, or to invoke. Uh, to invoke, that's an earnest request. It means to beseech, to ask for something earnestly, to beg, or to plead. And when you combine these ideas of calling near and then beseeching someone to do something, it makes me think of when I was in high school and I was playing basketball. And whether it was playing for the Grizzlies, the Burnaby Grizzlies, and we have some uh, former members of that team in the room, or whether it's uh, the Willamette Valley Crusaders, uh, there was one thing common with all the teams and all the coaches I played on uh, when our team was playing and when we were struggling, we, we started to get behind. The other team was building a big lead. We started becoming discouraged and disheartened uh, without fail, no matter who the coach was, because I've had multiple over the years, they would always call a timeout. And they would call us near to the bench with sometimes our heads held low. They would call us near and they would begin beseeching us to play differently to do something different, to make changes. What you're doing is not working. You're not playing defense hard enough. You're out of position. Uh, you're not boxing out, whatever the case may be. They would call a timeout. They would call us near and they would beseech us to make changes. And tonight I believe that God is calling a timeout in our lives and he's calling us near to himself and he's beseeching us to make changes. He's beseeching, he's pleading, he's exhorting with us to become a people of prayer. He is calling us to prayer, exhorting us. Now with this word exhort and the biblical meaning of it, 
uh, it tells me that this call to prayer is number one, not a suggestion. Not a suggestion. The first time you find this Greek word in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 3. And it's referring to John the Baptist. And in that chapter, I, I love Luke's gospel because he gives more details than others. And he gives us the longest uh, account of John the Baptist sermonizing his preaching that we have in the gospels. And in it, we read that he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, O generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he turns to publicans and Roman soldiers and he tells them, uh, from the mouth of God, how they are to behave. He's looking at the Roman soldiers and task collectors, and we can imagine the scene, the boldness and the fiery preaching of John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 18, this is how it sums up his preaching. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. So the word the Holy Spirit chose to summarize John the Baptist's preaching was exhortation. And I don't imagine John the Baptist being soft-spoken about looking the Sadducees in the face and calling them a generation of vipers or, or telling the Roman soldiers how they were to behave. Th this word in Scripture gives us the sense of urgency, gives us a sense that something must be done in our lives. The same thing in Acts 2, verse 40, where Peter has preached at Pentecost, one of the most powerful sermons in all the Bible, and it summarizes his words at the end in Acts 2.40, with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So Christian, please understand tonight that when God employs this word exhort, he wants to get our attention. He, he's urgent about it. He, he's pleading with us. Like John the Baptist preached to those people at the Jordan River, or like Peter preached at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is coming to us tonight, and he is beseeching us. He's calling us to prayer. And it's not a mere suggestion. But number two, this term tells me that it's not slavery either. It's not slavery either. So God is coming us. He's calling us to prayer. He's commanding us, if you will. But this word exhort, you, you know what other ideas it involves as well? And I think many of us are familiar with this. This Bible word exhort carries also the idea of comfort and encouragement. So oftentimes when my coaches would call me to the bench, there was no comfort in their voice, okay? There was no tenderness, okay? Often they were angry. They were mad. I remember one such session at halftime. I've never seen Pastor Donnelly that mad in all my life. He couldn't stand the way we were playing, okay? But the, the word we have here, exhort, it carries with it a tenderness, a fatherly love. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 11, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to these believers, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. And Christian, would you understand tonight that when God is coming to you and he is urging you and he is pleading with you to become an intercessor, to become a person of prayer, that he is not doing it as some belligerent master that just wants to make your life more difficult, 
He's coming to you as a loving father and he's saying, come here. I want to bless you. I want you to know me more. I'm calling you to a life of prayer. So that's the call. And next in this passage, we see the context. The context. The context is the setting or environment in which something happens or is said. And as you're studying scripture, you'll get a much better understanding of a particular text if you look at the context in which it was written. If you look at the rest of the book and the theme of the book, if you look at the immediate passages, and when you look at the context of 1 Timothy, you find that the Apostle Paul is writing to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, a young pastor, and he is teaching him how the church should be governed. Because pretty soon, the Apostle Paul is going to pass off the scene, and he's committing a charge to Timothy, a responsibility to keep teaching the truth, to keep leading the church, even after Paul is gone. And in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul explicitly gives the reason for writing this epistle. He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So you understand the context. He's writing to Timothy. This is how the church is to be governed. And he starts out teaching him about prayer. So that's the overarching context. But when you look at the immediate context of this passage, this very verse, you find, number one, that there is a fight in progress. There is a fight in progress. Look at verse number one. The Holy Spirit says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, these prayers be made for all men. I exhort, therefore. Now, as Pastor Yates likes to say, when you're reading your Bible and you come to a therefore, you need to ask, what is it therefore? And this therefore is pointing us to the previous passage to what the Apostle Paul had been talking to Timothy about. And look with me in verse 18, the immediate context telling us about this fight in progress. Verse 18, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck of whom is Imanius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. If you read this whole first chapter, you're going to find that in the Apostle Paul's day and in the environment in which uh, Timothy was pastoring, there was a battle going on. There was a battle between truth and lies. And the Apostle Paul was exhorting Timothy to hold to the truths of the gospel and to not let people teach any other doctrine. And you know, we fast forward to our day and that same battle is going on. It's interesting to note that Timothy was pastoring at this time in Ephesus. And when you read the Ephesian epistle, the apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter six about the warfare of the Christian and the armor of God and that we wrestle not against principalities and against powers, uh, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And so he's writing to Timothy in that context and there's a battle going on. 
And when you and I understand that the same battle is going on today, we understand why we are given this command to pray. Jude 1 verse 3, it's a similar admonition. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and catch this, and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. You read the New Testament, and as time goes on, and as it gets closer to the canon of Scripture being completed, apostasy was becoming more and more rampant. More and more people were departing from the truth. And when you read, especially these pastoral epistles, when we get to 2 Timothy 3.13, the Apostle Paul is at the point he's going to be, he's going to be slain any day. He's going to be executed. And in 2 Timothy 3.13, he says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. And what is the telltale sign of what they're doing? Deceiving and being deceived. It's this battle between truth and lies. And if it was getting worse and worse in Paul's day, you better believe it's getting worse and worse in our day. There's a battle for the truth. But yes, the apostle Paul said, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. But you keep reading and he tells Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And Christian, it may be getting worse and worse. And the battle may be raging more and more. But you know what God commands us to do? To continue. To keep fighting. And that's why this call to prayer is so vital. And that brings us to number two. The context tells us that this command to pray is of first importance. There's a fight in progress. And because of that fight, this call to prayer is of first importance. Look at verse one. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, Christian, I wonder if we examine our own lives, what is of first importance in our daily life? What do we make first of all in our schedule? What do we make first of all, in our Christian life. This is a call to the entire church and how, how devastated I would be if our church's intercessors ministry created this false idea that intercession is only for a select group of people in the church. That it's only for those that really want to get serious about it. This is what God calls the entire church to make first of all. You keep reading 1 Timothy, and the Apostle Paul gives the qualifications for a pastor. Now, that's pretty important. You, you need a pastor, like our pastor, Pastor Mackay, who's going to lead us according to the truth, who's going to live an upright life. That's pretty important, but the Holy Spirit of God put this first. And in all of our individual lives and in our life as a church, prayer must be first of all. Next, let's look at the contents of this call to prayer, this command to prayer. Look at the contents. When you receive a package in the mail from a friend or on Amazon, what do we normally do? We rip it open to see the contents, what's inside. 
Uh, you're not particularly interested in the brown cardboard and the blue tape on the Amazon Prime package. You want to get to the contents. When you're reading a book or when you're looking to buy a new book uh, and you pull one off the shelf, what I often do is turn to the table of contents to see the chapter headings and, and see what it's going to be about to see whether or not I want to read that. And I wonder if when God pulls back the layers of our life, when he looks into our lives, does he see the contents of this call to prayer in verse 1? Does he see us praying like this? Is this the content of our prayer lives? When we look at these items in verse 1, this list that the Apostle Paul gives, we see, number one, all kinds of prayer. All kinds of prayer. We see a list here, and it starts off with supplications. Supplications, that is something uh, that is asked with urgency based on presumed need. It carries with it the idea that I'm lacking something, so I go to God to get what I'm lacking and what I desperately need. It has this idea of need. I need something from God. Now, how many of you maybe have have listened to recordings of 911 calls. When, when people call 911, it's because they need help in a bad way. They, they desperately need help. And when you hear recordings of 911 calls, there's an urgency in the voice. There's a plea because I need something desperately, and there's that supplicating on the phone with 911. And I wonder, is this how we pray? Well, when we get on our knees before God and we're praying for other people in our lives or praying for our own needs, do we really have a sense of how desperately we need God? I'm not saying you have to be hysterical and that you have to sound like you're on a 911 call every time you pray, but is there an urgency in the way we pray because we sense how desperately it's needed? Supplication, this idea of a need. And then next is prayers. Now you study the New Testament and you're going to find that this is the most generic term in the New Testament for prayer. And it simply and generally means to speak to or make requests to God. So it is the most general term that the Apostle Paul could use for speaking to God. Now, when you and I are experiencing problems in our life, or if there's someone in our life that we're burdened for, whether it's a child, or if it's a friend, or if it's an unsaved loved one, you know what we tend to do? We tend to talk to all kinds of people. Maybe we even have conversations in our mind and turn over situations in our mind over and over and over. But I wonder how much we just go to God and talk to him about it. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying to us here, that for all men, we need to go to God and talk to him about their needs. Talk to the one who can do something about it. When you need help, if you are in a bad car accident or someone you love had a heart attack, you would call 911. You would not call your best friend. You would not call a sibling or a parent. 
You would call the type of people that you know could help you in that time of desperate need. And I wonder how many of us with the situations in our lives and the people in our lives that we care for, we have direct, direct access to God's throne, but we talk to everyone else instead of him. And all the while, we can go to someone who can actually do something about the problem. Supplications, prayers, intercessions. This word, I love this word. There are multiple words in the New Testament used for intercession. I love this one. It literally means an interview or an encounter in which you speak to someone on behalf of another person. So with this kind of prayer, you're you're not just chatting with God. You're not just telling him how your day's going. You're having an interview and encounter with him where you're speaking to him on behalf of someone else You're getting down to business with God and asking him to do something that you desperately need. Now, when you make a 911 call, you don't waste time with small talk. You don't ask the operator how they're doing. Do you? You say, my neighbor's house is on fire. Send a fire truck. You're having an encounter with a person on the phone. You're telling them exactly what your friend needs and you're asking them to do something about it. That's intercession. It's an encounter with the living God who can do more for your situation than anyone else and it's asking him to move. It's that 911 call. I just met, I just witnessed a bad accident. Can you please send an ambulance? It's specific. It's definite. It's not vague. You're having an encounter with a person on the phone asking them for help. That's intercession. It's calling your heavenly father to move on behalf of someone that you love. But I wonder, is this how we pray? When we pray through our our prayer lists, when we pray for our families, are we just going through the motions? Are we conscious of the fact that I am encountering the living God? who can help my family, who can help my neighbors, who can help my city more than anyone else, and he cares about what I have to say and what we need. And are we conscious that we are interviewing and encountering Almighty God? And do we plead with him with the urgency of someone who calls 911? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory, but I remember an occasion in my life where I had to call 911, and I can remember feeling profusely thankful to the operator on the phone. Thank you so much for helping me. Thank you for sending help on the way. And I remember when the help showed up, and after they had helped meet the need, I remember thanking them. And you know, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying, that our prayer life should be like, Notice the progression of of these types of prayer. You have supplications. So there's someone in your life that has a need. And then there's prayers. What is that? Going to God and talking to him about it. And then there's intercessions. So when you're going to God to talk to him about it, you're not just mouthing words. You're not just going through a list. You're conscious of the fact that you're encountering the living God. And when you've made your request, then you thank God for what he's about to do. And you thank him with the confidence that he's going to move. That is why in Philippians 4, it says, 
let your requests be made known unto God with thanksgiving. You know, so many of us in our prayers stop short of thanksgiving, and that's where, why our prayer life is so stagnant and struggles so much. Because we offer God these requests, but we, the way we act is though we're shooting out into the dark and we say, I hope that you heard me. I hope that maybe you'll do something about it. But then we go our way with no settled peace in our heart that anything's going to be done. Why? Because we forgot to give thanks. And like I was on the phone with that operator before help had come, before they had ever actually done anything about the situation, I thanked her for sending help. And I was confident that help would be on the way. And if I could have that kind of confidence in a 911 operator, why can I not have more confidence in the God of heaven? That when I come to him as his child, pleading on behalf of someone I love, I can thank him at the front end of that prayer. Before I've seen anything accomplished, I can thank him for what he's about to do. And then when help actually comes, when the requests are granted, don't forget to thank God. And don't forget that he is the one that stepped in and helped in your situation. Here we have all kinds of prayer. But we also have all kinds of people. All kinds of people. We're commanded to pray like this for all Men, do you realize that there is not one individual in your life who doesn't need prayer? There's not one person that you encounter at the grocery store that doesn't need prayer. There's not one person at your workplace that doesn't need prayer. Teenagers, there's not one person in your classroom at school who doesn't need your prayers. Christian, there's not one person in this room or in our church family that doesn't need our prayers. Every human being needs God's help. And God calls us to pray for all men. Matthew 5.44 calls us to pray even for our enemies. And then in this passage, he goes on to say specifically for kings and for all that are in authority. You know, this makes a lot of sense. Our God is wise. Our God knows what he's talking about. If he cares about us praying for all men, then doesn't it make sense that he would want us to pay uh, particular attention to praying for men that have the most influence over other men? Doesn't that just make sense? If God cares for all men, that he would want us to pray for the people whose lives affect the most amount of people? I mean, that just makes sense. And yet how little, and I count myself in this assessment, how little we pray for our leaders. But how much we complain about them and how much we talk about all the terrible decisions that they're making. But how much do we just stop the conversation at the dinner table or just stop the thoughts turning around our mind and stop to pray for all men? To pray for these authorities. You know why we don't stop to pray? Because we don't really believe that God's going to do anything about it. But the same God that we read about in Proverbs can turn the heart of the king. He's still alive today. And if he calls us to pray for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, then we need to be faithful 
to, to pray for the leaders of our nation, for the leaders in our world, thanking God that he will work on our behalf. Next, let's look at in this passage, the cause. The cause of this call to prayer. We've already looked at the context and dealt with some reasons, uh, but God gives us specifically reasons why he wants us to pray for all men. And number one, it's for local sanctification. Local sanctification. Notice, at the end of this command to pray for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, he gives his first reason why, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You know, we could restate that to say, pray for others so that you might live the life that God wants you to live. Do you realize the implications of this? God says, pray for all men that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. If we don't take seriously this call to prayer, you can forget about us growing in our walk with God. Because God says it's essential to our sanctification, to us becoming the people that he wants us to be. He, he wants us to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, obviously, there's an application here that as we're praying for our leaders, we pray that they would uh, uphold biblical principles, that they would uphold the law, that they would uphold freedoms so that we can lead a, a quiet and peaceable life in that manner on a, on a secular level. I heard a quote uh, recently, uh, times of social and political upheaval are great days to die for the Lord, but they're not good days to live for him. And God loves his children. He wants us to live for him. And he wants us to live abundant lives and have the freedom to share the gospel. And the apostle Paul, for much of his ministry, was free to share the gospel to and fro. But as his ministry is going later on, the government was becoming more and more hostile to the gospel. And so he's urging people to pray that freedoms would be upheld and that they'd be able to continue to do the work. But I believe there's even a greater application than this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And if you and I are not faithful to the call to pray for all men, we're not going to have peace. Not in a world like this. Not when you turn on the news and see all the junk that's happening in our world. And if you're not praying about these situations, and if you're not praying for these people, you're not going to be quiet and peaceable on the inside. These words, quiet and peaceable, they literally mean tranquil and undisturbed. It, it makes me think about a, a pond or a lake where there's no ripple in the water. It's perfectly still. You know what? That's what God wants for your heart. And that's what the Apostle Paul enjoyed even when he was in prison. Even when life looked terrible on the outside, he had peace in his heart. And that's what God wants for us. But Christian, you are never going to have peace in your heart if you don't, until you become a person of prayer. Because this world and everything that's going on, it's too much for our hearts to handle. And that's why we're commanded to cast our cares on him, for he cares for us. He wants us to enjoy this peaceable life. But then notice all godliness and honesty. Godliness, that means to be like God. Honesty means to live in a dignified manner that is worthy of respect. 
Christian, we are not going to become more like God and we are not going to be people worthy of respect and neglect prayer. Because through prayer, God shapes us to be the people we ought to be. And as we intercede for our fellow believers in the congregation and implore God to continue working in their lives, they begin to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the church becomes more godly as we pray for one another. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to Ephesus and he's telling them all these truths, but he has to stop not once but twice during the epistle to pray for those believers that they would just get what he's talking about. And that's what Pastor Mackay was praying this morning. He was preaching about God's forgiveness, life-changing, liberating truths, but he knew that if the Holy Spirit didn't apply them to our hearts, they'd go over our heads. They'd go in one ear, out the other. There'd be no change. Without prayer, we will never become a people of all godliness and honesty. It's for local sanctification. Number two, It's for celestial glorification. Notice verse three. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Christian, when your life is over, you're going to stand before God and be in his sight. And all the things that we invested in in this world that were of a fleeting nature are going to mean nothing in his sight. But how much we committed ourselves to prayer is going to mean all the world to him. Do you realize in Revelation we read that God is holding believers' prayers in vials, in bottles? God cares so much about his people's prayer and intercession that he's collecting them and preserving them for all of eternity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And there are a lot of good things that we can be involved in on a daily basis. But there is nothing better in the sight of God than praying for our fellow men. Does it matter to us more what is good and acceptable in His sight or what is good and acceptable in ours? Let us be people that want more than anything else to please him to please our loving Father. One day, those who have been faithful to pray are going to see the glory, the reward of all that time in prayer. And they gave up a lot on this earth, but God will be no man's debtor. So Christian, live for that glorification of doing what is good and acceptable in the sight of your God. But notice, verse 3 says, God, our Savior but the church was never meant to be selfish about what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, he's our savior, but notice verse four, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Number three here, if you're taking notes, for the cause of this call to prayer, global salvation. Yes, he's God, our Savior, but he wants to be all men's Savior. And the command is to pray in verse 1 for all men. Why? Because in verse 4, we're told that God will have all men to be saved. Why does God want us to pray for everyone in our lives? Because he wants everyone in our lives to be saved. He wants everyone in our lives to live a life that's in all godliness and honesty, that is good and acceptable in his sight. Christian, we talked about it 
in the message about the Lord Jesus and his intercession. But when we give ourselves to prayer, we are, we are finally coming to know the heart of the Lord Jesus. Because you read in chapter 1 here in 1 Timothy, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's left us on this same planet to continue his work. Now, I wonder on a daily basis, are we living for the same purpose that the Lord Jesus came to this earth? Christian, if you are going to become an intercessor, you're going to have to follow the example of the Lord Jesus and look in verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You're going to have to give yourself. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. The one who in verse 5 is the one mediator between God and man. You know what's wonderful about that word mediator? It's a synonym for intercessor. He is the one way that people can be restored to fellowship with God. And we as his body on this earth are the one means that God has ordained whereby people can be brought into right relationship with him. And there's no way we can fulfill our responsibility like we ought without God's power upon us. So we must pray. And there's no way we can convince people of their need for salvation without the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. And that is why we must pray. Finally, and we'll close with this. In this passage, we see the confidence of this call. The confidence. A confidant is a person entrusted with the confidence of another. And God is entrusting us with this plan of global salvation. He's calling us to this work of prayer. But notice verse 8. Who the greatest responsibility is laid upon. Verse 8. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Men of Metro Baptist Church, God is looking to us to lead in the area of prayer. No, this doesn't mean that the ladies in our church don't have a part in intercession. You keep reading 1 Timothy, you find that the qualifications for a widow woman uh, to be a widow indeed and have the care of the church is that she gave herself to prayers and supplications. Obviously, God wants the prayers of, of men and women. But he is calling upon the men of this church to lead in this area of prayer. And, and why is that? Because again, God is wise. And like he commands us to pray for authorities because they have the effect on the most amount of people, he lays the burden and the responsibility of intercession squarely on the shoulders of the men of this church. Why? Because he knows if the men are praying, so will the wives. And if the wives are praying, so will the children. Men, we have a great responsibility. And I wonder, are we praying everywhere? Are we praying at home? Are we praying at work? Are we praying at church and being there for the 10 o'clock prayer meetings and being there whenever we have the opportunity to pray with the church? Men, we've got to lead in this. And heaven forbid that the ladies' prayer meeting on Sunday morning has more people than the men's. We've got to lead men. He's calling us to this great work. Christian, we're living 
in a world that is lost and on its way to hell. When we look out across the street at our neighbors, their houses are on fire. They are without God and without hope in this world. And if we don't do something about it, they could spend eternity separated from God. But listen, God is calling us and exhorting us and beseeching us and inviting us to this work of prayer because he wants all men to be saved. And we can look at this as a burdensome responsibility, or we can look at it as a great privilege. God wants to use me to bring salvation to my neighborhood. God wants to use me to bring salvation to my home, to my school, to my workplace. And I can't do it on my own. I can't bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ, but the Holy Spirit can. And so I'm going to give myself to prayer because my heavenly father is inviting me into this work that the Lord Jesus is already doing at his throne and I get to be privileged to intercede with him. Christian, God is calling us to prayer. He's exhorting us and beseeching us. Will we respond? Let's pray. Heavenly father, we thank you that you call us to prayer, and it's not some overwhelming burden, it's, it's an overwhelming privilege. And Father, I pray that you change the way we view prayer. That we, that we wouldn't want to pass up an opportunity to pray for someone else and bring salvation or bring blessing into their lives. Well, God, our Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts and make us a people of prayer. Please bless this invitation as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.